You know, it is incredible to me the confusion that abounds about the church in the church. The confusion that abounds in the church about the church. What I'm saying is so many people who go to church simply do not understand the cosmic significance of the church. Out of all the theologies, they get overlooked and neglected to the detriment of the church. It is precisely the theology of the church. What it is, why it exists, why it matters, what are the non-negotiable com components to which a church must give itself and why all of it matters for the glory of Christ. So much of that is just lost on so many people who go to church every single Sunday. Now, I'm not accusing you of that. I'm not rebuking you for that, uh, but I am lamenting a little bit that probably millions of professing Christians do not understand that the church is the most priceless entity on the face of the planet. So many do not know that the church alone is the bride of Christ. The church alone is the pillar and support of the truth. The church alone is what Jesus bought with his blood. The church alone is what Christ promised to build. Nothing else in the Bible receives that kind of notoriety. What I'm saying is, if you want to be where the action is, if you want to be where God is at, and where he has his gaze permanently fixed, and where his blessings flow to the fullest, it is in the local church. Healthy local churches that devote themselves and to give themselves what the Bible says churches ought to be and do, and yet I will confess to you, I will confess there is pressure on pastors to craft a vision, to generate momentum, to blaze a trail, as it were, to grip the souls of the people with some inspiring, compelling plan that they, sh that they can feel like they can buy into, and that's fine, and pastors should do a version of that, I suppose, but pastors should also never feel the pressure to be creative, to be innovative, to be cutting edge, or state of the art. Why? Because the Lord of the church has already given his vision for the church in the pages of scripture. The builder of the church has already given the blueprints for the church in the pages of scripture. It's already there. And so what pastors should feel the pressure to be and do is to be faithful. Faithful to what the New Testament says a church ought to be and do. And you should feel that pressure also. There's lots of places in the Bible where the plan is revealed, the mission is revealed. And one of those places is, in fact, John chapter 17. 
Christ reveals the cutting-edge, state-of-the-art plan unfolding in the world. And the thing about John 17, you know, is that it is a prayer. A prayer of Christ to the Father minutes before he was arrested and betrayed and condemned and crucified. But you see, what makes this prayer just so astonishing is that contained in this prayer is the very plan of salvation designed by God before time began. That if we want a compelling, powerful, cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, radical plan to which to give ourselves, we need look no further than John chapter 17. It's all here. And this morning, that's all we're going to do. That's all we're going to do. We're going to unfold the implications of this prayer of Christ to the Father and what it means for us as a church moving forward. Because should we take the implications of John 17 serious, should we take them serious, and we should, it demands that now is the time to take our church to the next level. It's time to move our church to the next stage. Because think about, just just think about for a moment where we are in history and what's happening in the world. Every single thing that God commands and commends in his word is not only challenged and hated, but deliberately reversed, isn't it? Churches are targeted. It's global persecution. There's an unspeakable sexual revolution aimed at children. It's transgender insanity. Masculinity is toxic. The family is oppressive. Everything is racist. Evildoers are rewarded. The righteous are punished. Police are defunded. Drag queens are exalted. Truth is hidden. Lies are esteemed. Babies are slaughtered. Animals are saved. Men act like women. Women act like men. Is it not obvious that the evil one has his foot on the pedal of his plan all the way down? And yet you see what this means for us, don't you? It means that God has ordained that we would be his people for such a time as this. That now is not the time to retreat from the world, but more precisely to engage the world. (laughs) That here now is our chance. Here now is our golden opportunity to double down on trusting the word of God to work and to move and to save the elect scattered in the world. This is a message from all the elders and even the staff to you. Unfolding the implications of John 17 and what it means for us as a church moving forward. Here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see nine implications. If you have your notes, they're in there. Nine implications of Christ's prayer to the Father that unleash in us a passion to finish the mission. That's where we're going. Nine implications of this prayer that unleash in us a passion to finish the mission. Implication number one, there is a prayer implication. There is a prayer implication to Christ's prayer to the Father, isn't there? 
And the implication is precisely that we should pray. We should pray more. We should pray more deliberately. We should pray more urgently, more passionately, more biblically. Verse 1, Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I mean, what's he doing? He's praying, which is crazy. Because everything about which he prays, the father and the son already discussed back before time in eternity past. Why is he praying about this? They already discussed it. Maybe it's because it speaks to the awesome place of prayer in the plan of God, doesn't it? Because you see, prayer doesn't change God's plan. Prayer doesn't change what God has ordained. Rather, God unfolds the plan that he ordained through the prayers of his people. Prayer is not for the fluffing of the pillows of our comfort. It is an instrument of war. In fact, we will not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. And if you don't like praying very much, or you don't feel like you're very good at it, or it's a struggle for you, or, 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 or you're, not, you're not very skilled at how to do this, or you're not very passionate about it, get someone to teach you how to pray. And at the end of the day, the best way, the best way to pray is to pray scripture back to God, to make the sacred text, to make the very words of God to us, our words back to him in prayer. If there's anything that he wants to do and accomplish, it is the very word that he has spoken to us. But three prayer challenges I'm going to give to you. Number one, we're going to start meeting soon at 8.30 a.m. to pray before the service. It's not a requirement. You don't have to be there, but we're going to do that. Keep you posted. Number two, we're going to have quarterly meetings of corporate prayer. We're going to call them prayer summits, and we're going to plead with the living God to work and move in and through our church. We're going to devote our family meetings to those. Not everyone, but we're going to do that. We're going to pray as a church body. And then number three, this is big as a challenge for you. I want you to take all of Romans chapter 12, the whole chapter, and I want you to take one day of your week and make that your prayer for yourself and for our church. Romans chapter 12, one day a week, and make that your prayer for yourself and for our church. And we're going to do it for the whole year and just see what God does. Reminders are coming. We must pray. Not because, not for our own, merely our own personal devotional delight, but because prayer is a weapon that conquers the powers of darkness and unbelief. Implication number two. Implication number two, there is a worship implication. There is a worship implication to John 17. And by worship, I don't merely mean singing on Sunday morning. Rather, I mean the glad-hearted treasuring of God through his word. That is worship. And you understand, that's priority number one for you and for this church. Namely, that Jesus Christ and the triune God would be the supreme and central object of our deepest affections. That's what it means to be a Christian. And where I get this from in the prayer is first in verse 3. 
in verse 3, where Christ says that eternal life is knowing he and the Father. Eternal life, think about that, is knowing the Trinity. It's not merely living a really long time, but it is knowing the Father and the Son and Trinitarian fellowship and delight forever. To know the Father and the Son is to know them as the supreme delight and treasure of the soul. Do you see? And then look at verses 25 and 26. Christ defines what it means to be a Christian. You're never going to believe it. Oh, righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these ones know that you sent me. And I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which you loved me would be in them and I in them. Did you hear what he said a Christian is? (laughs) To be a Christian is that you love him just as much as the Father loves him. That's a Christian. To love with infinite intensity what the Father himself loves with infinite intensity, that the very love the Father has for his Son would be your love for the Son. That the greatest thing you have in common with the Father is that you love his son more than anything in the universe. That's a Christian. Is that you? Do you want that to be you? And what that means is that you must make it your highest ambition every single day to see and savor Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is and how and when and where that happens is through careful, thoughtful meditation upon the word of God, right? There's not another way to grow in your love for God except through that. You see, it's not just that you read your Bible. But that you read your Bible the way the Bible wants you to read the Bible, which means all true worship and treasuring of the triune God happens when we ransack the word of God in long, long meditation upon who he is. And I know that's not new to you. You already knew, you already knew that you were to be a people richly indwelt by the word of Christ, but I cannot emphasize more strongly to you how utterly indispensable your personal time in God's word is to the global mission unfolding in the world. Don't you see? Time in God's word is a great commission issue. In fact, the most loving service you can render to another human being is to get your own soul saturated with the word of Christ. And so the challenge is, the challenge is, read your Bible. (laughs) Read it every day. Read it up and down. Read it again and again and again until you can almost see the words when you close your eyes. Think hard about the text. Don't let what is unknown or foggy stay unknown or foggy. Fight with the text until you master it. Or should I say, until it masters you? If you want to serve people, 
if you want to love people, if you want your life to be used for the plan of God unfolding in the world, and I know that you do, you must picture yourself like a spiritual mountaineer climbing the glorious heights of revelation. Because the more glory you see of who Christ is, the more your life will be used for the mission to which you are called. Implication number three. Implication number three, there is an identity implication. There is an identity implication. What I mean is John 17 both tightens and even corrects our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. You see, we get half of what it means to be a Christian. We rightly understand that to be a Christian is that we get God's grace. We forget that to be a Christian also means that we are an instrument of God's grace. What I mean is when Christ saved you out of the world, he simultaneously sent you into the world. That's what he meant in verse 18 when he says, Father, even as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Don't you see? To be saved is to be sent. Did you know that? You are sent from the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. To be rescued by the gospel hear this, automatically makes you a herald and ambassador of that same gospel. To be a disciple automatically makes you a disciple maker for the Lord Jesus Christ. All our lives are, are a continuation of Christ's own mission to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. What that means is we abdicate our identity as Christians if we have no meaningful engagement with the lost for the sake of the gospel and Jesus Christ. And so what this requires then is that you need to ask the Lord to give you a new pair of eyes. To see your life and your job and your interactions with lost people in a missional way. You need to ask the Lord to show you habits and patterns of wrong thinking in your life. For instance, you need to ask yourself, am I really living for the great commission or am I living for my greatest comfort? Is my life essentially lived for the pursuit of my own private pleasure and not for the glory of Christ? What commitments Fill my life and fill my schedule that prevent me from having time to make disciples and share the gospel. How does the way I use money and time reflect what my true values and concerns are? And do those values and concerns reflect the values and concerns of Christ himself? Am I mastered by distractions? Work? Hobbies, entertainment, smartphones, social media? Am I mastered by distractions that blunt my urgency and passion that I should, I should feel for the mission? Do I view lost people with apathy and indifference? 
Can I look in the souls of lost people who have no hope and say or feel nothing? Do I outsource the mission to make disciples to pastors and missionaries because I assume that that's their job and not mine? See, these are the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves. This is the way we must interrogate ourselves because we can't just play church. Not when there's souls hanging on the line. I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying that is the way it is. Implication number four. Number four, there is an equipping implication. There is an equipping implication. What I mean is there is embedded in Christ's prayer the assumption that effectiveness for the mission requires specialized training and preparation. And in particular, it requires rigorous biblical and theological training and preparation. I think that's what he means in verse 17. Look what he says. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Again, the context is mission not personal holiness. He's not talking about the moral improvement of our lives when he says sanctify. Rather, he's talking about the holy consecration of our lives to be set apart for a sacred purpose of reaching the world. And you can tell because the very next verse he says, even as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Do you see what Christ is doing? He's literally Asking the Father to use his word to create in us a passion to finish the mission. But you see, the word produces the passion. The word generates propulsion. When we get our theology right, we will hear the screams of the damned. You need to understand that, that theological famine results in missiological failure. What I mean is the church that does not proclaim the word will not reach the world. We're not going to sacrifice biblical and theological depth just because there are lost people to save. No. No. We are going to plunge ourselves into the theological depths precisely because there are lost people to save. Do you see? That's, that's why we preach sermons and do classes and sell books and why we do theology all the time. That's why we are so truth heavy at this church. Not because sermons and classes and books are an end in themselves, but because those things are kindling for the mission. We do those things so that you have something substantial to say. And so the challenge is, if you can help it, don't skip the gathering of the body. Don't skip this. Why? Because this is the huddle. That is the game. Take an equipping class every semester. I'm not trying to bind your consciences like you're in sin if you don't. Take an equipping class. I'm just saying that's what they're there for. 
Take an equipping class every, every semester. Buy a book, and when you're done, buy and read another one. Get connected to a small group and discipleship group, and don't view it as optional. Instead, see these things as a great commission investment to make you more effective for the mission to which you have been called. Do you see? That's why it's there, which brings us to implication number five. Number five, there is an evangelism implication. There is an evangelism implication to this prayer. And, and I know that the second we talk about evangelism, the old guilt-o-meter goes right through the roof because we sometimes are not particularly great at evangelism. We are afraid. We feel like we don't know too much. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to engage in conversations. And yet, and yet, there is a reality in the text that frees us to evangelize. And it is the reality that the Father has already chosen who will believe. It's called election. It's called predestination. And you see, the prayer makes perfectly clear that before time began, the Father chose some from every nation and gave them to his Son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. Verse 2, Everyone whom you have given to me, I will give to them eternal life. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men you gave to me out of the world. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, because they are yours. Verse 20, I am, ask, I am not praying for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 24, Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that they be with me to see my glory. Do you see the gift? Those given by the Father to the Son, there is a particular people handpicked by the Father and given to his Son for whom he would die and buy the treasure of eternal life. And notice in verse 20, notice, look at the text. They will believe. They will believe. They will believe. It is certain. It is settled. It is guaranteed. We don't know who they are. We just know that they are. And it is precisely that they are that motivates our evangelistic proclamation of the gospel. Don't, don't you see? All evangelism is is a salvation scavenger hunt for those predestined by the Father. And you see, this does not make our evangelism meaningless. It guarantees that our evangelism cannot possibly fail. And you just need to wrestle with the reality that the elect are among you in your life. You know some of them at your schools, at your jobs, at the place where you get your coffee, in your neighborhood, sometimes even in your own families. They are among you. And the Father chose them to be saved, and they will get saved, but only if you open your mouths. Because the gospel is good news, to be sure. But only if it gets there on time. 
And church, let me just tell you that I've been praying for us as a church for some time now. The elders have been praying that the Lord would work here in this body, that there would be a collective weight and burden for the lost people in your lives. And I really believe that the best kind of evangelism that we can do as a church is, is not to run a bunch of programs where we invite random people to come and accept something. Rather, what I think we need is to have our eyes opened to the already existing gospel opportunities that are already there right in front of our face. A few challenges. Evangelism challenges. Number one. Number one. I want you to make a list of every single unbeliever that you know and take one day a week to pray for their salvation. Just list them. Take one day a week to pray for them. And that they would get saved. That their, that, that their eyes would be open to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Maybe even through your mouths. Number two. Start inviting people who don't know Christ to small group. Maybe they would never step foot in a church, but maybe they would come to a home and have a meal and hear the word proclaimed. Number three, come to the theology seminar on the 29th of this month where we will talk about evangelism and how to proclaim the gospel to lost people. The 29th, final Sunday, fifth Sunday of this month. Four, if you're good at outreach and you like sharing the gospel with people, don't do it alone. I don't mean for your protection. I mean for discipleship. Take someone from this church with you and help them and let them see what it is you're doing. Spread a passion for evangelism by taking someone with you because we learn best often by seeing and doing. Number five, pick a person on your list of lost people and invite them this week to lunch or to coffee and make it a goal to share how you got saved with them. We call it a testimony. But don't just make it about your personal private story and all the intricacies of your life, the hospital you were born in and what school you graduated from. That's fine and that's good and that's important. Make sure that your testimony has the gospel embedded within it and that your testimony is an inherent call to action to repent. And finally, number six, this is big. You don't have to do this, but it's a challenge. Ask an unbelieving neighbor who lives in your vicinity, in your very neighborhood, to come over every single week for coffee to study one of the Gospels or Paul's letter to the Romans. However you want to frame that, however you want to invite them, is up to you. But there are lost and hurting people on your block. And with the evil one's barrage of lies being dumped into every home all day, every day, it's about time that we start pushing back with the truth. Implication number six. Number six, there is a church implication. There's a staggering church implication embedded in this prayer, and it is when Christ said, prayed, that we would be one. Look at verses 21 through 20, 20 through 23. This is devastating in a good way. 20 through 23. I'm not praying for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Why? That they all would be one. 
Even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they would be in us. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. And I, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them that they would be in us. That they would be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they would be perfected into one. Why? That the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. Do you know what that is? Those are the cosmic implications of having a healthy church. And Christ calls it being one. That's his definition for a, for a community of people, for a church of people. He calls them being one. What, what does that mean to be one? And further, what did he say the effects of being one would be? And I said it last week, to, to be one is not at all some mushy, sentimental unity. We're at the expense of our theological convictions. We just sort of hold hands and get along. A non-theological interfaith dialogue is the furthest thing from Christ's mind. In fact, it is the opposite of that. Rather, to be one, get this, relates to our global mission of putting Christ on display. And whatever, whatever it means to be one, you can tell that it's profoundly Trinitarian, can't you? I'm praying that they would be one even as you are in me and I am in you, that they would be in us, I in them and you in me, that they would be perfected into one. What does this mean to be one? And last week I defined being one in this way. To be one together, listen carefully, means that we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things. One, we prize Christ together in community. Two, we have unqualified submission to his word. And three, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity do. That's what it means to be one. That we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things. One, we treasure Christ together in community. Two, we have unqualified submission to his word. And three, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity do. That's what it means to be one. And what did Christ say the world would know? Should we do that? What did he say? Verse 21, I am praying that they would be one. Why? What's the result? That the world would know that you sent me. Verse 23, I am praying that they would be one. Why? What's the result? That the world would know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. That, that's incredible. I, I don't know how to wrap my head around that. But you can totally tell, can't you? You can totally see 
that Christ is just assuming that unbelievers are going to see you being one together. Isn't that the assumption? That he is assuming that his people will make concentrated efforts to weave lost people into their lives so that they can witness the oneness that Christ is talking about. And I think very practically how we can do that in our context is very simply inviting people to your small group. That's it. We can, we can do this. We can have opportunities for this simply by doing that. And let them witness that oneness in real time as they watch you eat together and laugh together and pray together and study God's word together. They will see unfolding before their eyes something glorious and profound. Don't you see? When we fulfill our mission to be one, Christ said that the world would know that the father sent him. And that, and that the father loves us just as much as he loves his own son. That's a really specific conclusion to come to just based on what you see Christians doing to and with one another. And I think the point is people are going to get saved. People are going to get delivered if they see that. Which is why, which is why being a healthy church matters so much. Don't you see? It matters so much that we do this right. So here's a few considerations. A few considerations uh, thinking about what it means to be a church. Not the least of which is that we need to deal severely with slander and gossip and division. It just can't happen. We must deal with issues. Don't let them linger or fester. Do not. I beg you, do not. If you want to kill this for our church... Let those things go. But if you want to do what Christ is talking about, let's just deal with issues, deal with issues. But here's a few things to think through. Number one, being one implies being present. Present here on Sunday morning, present in, in one another's lives. You see, being one means that we see as essential whatever the Lord of the church has declared is essential. And what is essential is this here, Sunday morning, the gathering of the redeemed to worship their redeemer. I want you to view this as non-negotiable. Not because we care about just getting butts in the seats. Not because we, we care about getting gold stars for good attendance. No. It's that we understand what the church is and what our responsibility to one another is. When you show up on Sunday morning, it's game time. You expect and even demand that the pastors and staff are here on Sunday morning, don't you? You demand it. And we wouldn't have it any other way. We want to be here. This is our life. And I want you to have that same expectation of yourself. Why? Because you are no less critical to the mission than the pastors and staff who are required and paid to be here. Number two. Being one in the local church demands that we do what we call redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships. And what that means is my spiritual growth is your priority. 
and your spiritual growth is my priority. That I don't become more like Christ without you. And you don't become more like Christ without me. Put it this way. My holiness is your business. And your holiness is my business. Not in a creepy cult way, but in a Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 way. Don't you see, we are all agents in one another's sanctification. And very practically, what that could mean is, I'm not going to make you do anything, but these are ways to apply what we're talking about. Very simply, what that could mean is do hospitality. Once a week, once a month, once a quarter, whatever. Have people into your home and make them a meal and just find out how they're doing spiritually. You could just say, hey, just before you leave, I just want to find out ways that I can pray for you. What a win. What a win. How about this? When you show up to small group or Sunday morning, just make it your ambition to be intentional. What I mean is our aim in every conversation should be to give that person whatever it is about Christ that they need at that particular moment. Our job towards one another is to mediate and portray Christ to one another. It just requires being intentional, asking questions, find out how people are. Here's another one. Find someone in the church to invest in. Find someone in the church to invest in you. Read a book together. Study the scriptures. Pray for one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens in this brutal battle called the Christian life. Because you see, if we were to love with that kind of intentionality, we will be acting out our oneness. And if we do that, we are a picture of the Trinity to the world. Implication number seven. Number seven, almost home. There is a holiness implication. There is a holiness implication to this prayer that Christ prays. Because how many times did Christ say in this prayer that as his people, we are no longer from this world? Verse 13. Now I'm coming to you, Father. And I'm speaking these things into the world so that my joy would be fulfilled in them. I have given to them your word and the world has hated them because they are not from the world. Even as I am not from the world, I am not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not from the world, even as I am not from the world. Do you see that? If you are in Christ, you no longer belong to the world. You've been saved out of the world. It's not that we're better than the world, but, then, but that we have been freed by sovereign grace from the diabolical system of the world. We no longer share its passions and its desires and its ambitions precisely because Christ has something better to give. Look again what he said in verse 13. This is astonishing. I am coming to you, Father, and these things I am speaking in the world, that they would have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Do you see this? Part Christ's joy in us is part of what it means to be a Christ follower. But you see, the, the most distinguishing characteristic that defines us 
is not our disgust with the evil of the world, but a holy joy that frees us from the passing pleasures of the world. Do you see? We out rejoice the world. Which means if we try to make our joy dependent on the world, we forfeit our witness to the world. I mean, you can see in verse 15 that the crazy dynamic of our existence, Christ does not want to remove us out of the world yet. Rather, to keep us from the evil one, meaning that we are protected from his lies and his schemes that would destroy us were we left to fend for ourselves. And so, beloved, the implication is we must be a holy people. And holiness, you understand, is radically pervasive and very, very practical, is it not? I mean, for instance, beloved, think about it. More than any other age in history, you are under threat. From the de deceptions and depravity of the world, you, you, you live in other ages, other ages before screens, that you, you were somewhat limited by whom, with whom you could interact with, right? You, you were limited by the people you could interact with. There were certain people and ideas and ideologies that, that people were never exposed to, right? They weren't more godly, they just, there just wasn't the exposure. But now, my oh my, now, we have instant, unlimited access to the most sinister depravity of the human heart injected directly into our homes and into our minds. I'm not saying that social media and screens are inherently evil. I'm just saying they are not neutral ground. I'm saying the world is passionately trying to shape its viewers to conform to its values. Parents, don't just hand your kids a phone and let the devil's henchmen disciple them because that's exactly what they're trying to do and they are exceptionally good at it. There's almost no match. There's almost no match for the infinite labyrinth of what the internet is. And so we must be di diligent. We must be vigilant. We must be different, beloved. The culture in the world does not have a right to tell us how to live. We don't have to. And we must not conform to the values and expectations of the culture. We say no. We don't have to own or to be or to do anything the culture says. Why? Because Christ did not die to merely create a moral people, but a holy. We must outrejoice the world. We must look different than the world. A few thoughts to think about. A few questions to ask yourself. These are going to sting. Prepare yourselves. You pay me to make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> when you are around unbelievers, either in person or through online, 
When you listen to unbelievers, do you find yourself bending to their influence? Are you allowing them to shape your values and your passions and your priorities and your convictions? Do you see it? Do you see it? In what ways might you be allowing unbelievers and their idols to shape your own priorities and your appetites? What I'm asking is, does entertainment, possessions, career, sports, or gaming have the upper hand in your life? Are your passions and ambitions shaped more by the word of God or by the world around you? Do you, like the fidgety culture in which we live, feel like you need constant stimulation, gratification, and entertainment? Do you mirror the same restless antsiness of, the, of a world without hope who constantly has to be on their phone? Or do you see a gradually increasing sober-minded self-control and mastery over your own soul? I'm not going to check your screen time. I'm not, I'm not going to micromanage that for you. You're grown-ups. You're adults. You have a Lord and a master, and it's not me. I'm just asking. We've got we to ask ourselves these questions. Let me ask it this way. This is going to hurt. What can you tolerate more? 24 hours without time with Christ in his word, or 24 hours without time on social media and being entertained? You have to answer, and you have to decide what that means. Again, my point is not that sports or gaming or any of that is inherently evil. My point is simply that holiness, that being different, is a great commission issue. Do you see? What, what your family needs from you, what your church needs from you, what the nations need from you is your own personal holiness. Because a holy people and a holy church is a lethal weapon in the hands of a living God. Implication number eight. Implication number eight. There is a persecution implication. There's a persecution implication, beloved. And there's no easy way to say this. I'm just going to say it. You're going to have to prepare to be a suffering church. You're going to have to prepare to be a persecuted church. We can't avoid this, not if we're going to be faithful. You don't even have to be one of those obnoxious, you know, Christians on a street corner with a megaphone you know, to, to get flack, to get heat. You don't even have to be that anymore. Remember 1 John 3, 12? Cain killed Abel simply because his deeds were righteous. He didn't even have to say anything. And I just want you to know that the sheer fact that you exist is too much for the world. It's too much for them. Just the fact that you exist is an irritant to the world. And understand this, that when all the power tips into their favor, they will come for us. 
You can smile at me if you want. That's a fact. They will come for us. 1 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet, church, I'm not worried about this at all. I'm not worried about this at all. And neither should you. Because what, is, what does Christ mean in Luke 21? When he says that some of you they will put in jail and some of you they will kill and then two verses later say, but not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. You can't have it both ways. Oh, yes, you can. Because, if he, because he means that nothing can truly harm us in the end. Nothing. Do you understand that the more you get persecuted, the more you will get rewarded? Did you know that? That more... Persecution equals more reward. It's a fact. That's in the Bible. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Listen carefully. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are you when they reproach you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward. <sighs> they can take your job. They can take your possessions. They can take your home. They can take your money. But they can not take your reward. The more you suffer, the more you'll be rewarded. What a way to go. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. A couple of responses. What do you do with this? Well, how do you prepare? Number one, do theology. Read theology. Read a lot of theology. Sound and profound theology because you understand what theology is for, right? Theology gives you muscle to bear the weight. Number two, to prepare, you need to cultivate deep, deep relationships within the church. The best defense against the coming assault is that you make this your family that you love and that you pray for and that you care for with all of its glaring imperfections because they're going to come and they're going to try to scatter us. They're going to try to divide us. And yet we must resist and just let the chips fall where they may. Last but not least, I know I'm out of time. I kind of care. <laughs> implication number nine. There, there's an eschatology implication. There's an eschatology implication. Look what he says in verse 24. Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that they be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, what I want out of this whole deal, Father, what I want out of this is that those whom you have given to me would be with me, that they would be with me. And you can tell, can't you, that his goal for us is not so that he could marvel at us forever, but so that we could marvel at him forever. 
That's what he means by his glory. That, that, that for all eternity, we would forever enjoy everlasting and ever increasing joy and pleasure in the triune God for ages and beyond. You see, and if you have been handpicked by the Father and purchased by the Son, that is your destination. And the point is, the point is, this is where all our courage flows from. This is settled. This is certain. We've got nothing to lose. But you see, eschatology is a weapon. The heavy artillery of the Bible to wage war on the fears and idols that pull our gaze away from Jesus Christ. We will only be as courageous and bold and effective and faithful as our eschatology is precise. And so you see, and I close with this, you see the logical implications, don't you, of this prayer to the Father? It liberates us to be and do what churches are called to be and do. Think about it, beloved. The world is God's theater. The church is the stage. The word of God is the script. Christ is the star of the show on center stage. And we, what we are, we are the ushers bringing in God's elect from all the nations. And at the end of the age, oh, what a standing ovation there will be for all eternity. There's nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so let's pray to be faithful to that end. Oh, Christ, we ask that you would free us. You would free us and liberate us with the truth of your word. That we would see that we have everything to gain. The plan is settled. The plan is certain. Your word is powerful. The gospel is lethal and life-saving. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would motivate us and empower us and inspire us. Not out of guilt, but out of a vision of your glory. We look to you. We call out to you. We cry out to you, O oh Lord. We, we, we're asking you to move and work in our church in such a way that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural. So help us, O oh Lord, to grow, to make transformations, and that you would help us see the world and our church and our mission through a new pair of eyes. And it's in your mighty name we pray.